didn't ask Jeffrey Christian about Ethereum. But there is always a next time. We have a great interview coming up here. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. And like I was just saying there, we have a very wide-ranging interview with Jeffrey Christian. It's kind of funny. Maybe I just had a lot of questions for him because I've been listening to Jeffrey Christian for over 10 years on shows. So it's kind of funny to actually finally talk to him directly. I saw him once at a conference. I was in the same room, one of these tiny little PDAC conference rooms like four or five years ago. I didn't say hi or introduce myself or anything. So anyways, it was great to actually just have a good conversation. You know, it's one of the things I really like about all this kind of Zoom, Skype, Teams world we live in where everything's mediated by the screen. You really feel relaxed. It's not like being in front of 200, 300, 2,000 people where there's like a physiological response almost necessarily, and that's something you learn how to address over time and you get better at it. With these screens, it's like you're talking to your neighbor or your best friend, you know, and you haven't even, you know, you've never talked to this person before. Anyways, I'm excited to present you that interview. It's pretty long. It's one of our longer interviews, and uh, but it's great, and it touches on everything that matters right now, the U.S. election, what's going on in the precious metals markets. You know, we even touch on Bretton Woods and the IMF coming out and talking about a new Bretton Woods moment. Gold is a store of value versus Bitcoin, which a lot of people still ignore. But uh, so it was great. And we got Jeffrey's take on it. I sort of I don't want to say I let it slide, but I could have kept going. Let's just put it that way on the whole Bitcoin thing. But you don't want to scare people off, including you guys. So I let it go, but I think there will be a next time. And uh, I'm pretty sure there will be. Jeffrey seemed up for it. So something to look forward to in the coming months. Uh, But until then, we have this great show lined up. And yeah, we also have, speaking of questions, you can send in your questions to David Rosenberg in a couple of short weeks. Let's just look at the countdown clock. We have the Global Mining Symposium and we have another all-star lineup. The event staff and Aladdin at marketing are all just working overtime. Anthony Vaccaro, I think, leads this effort. And so it's really impressive. And yeah, we have Global Mining Symposium, November 10th and 12th. Register for free, northernminer.com slash GMS. There's also a big orange button for sponsorship info. I saw Joe, one of our sales guys, had tweeted out something like, last chance. I think that was yesterday. So you I'm sure you still have time, but if you are interested in sponsoring this event that's coming up, you want to get your story out, uh, reach out, just go to northernminer.com slash contact, and you will find the emails of Joe and Michael, and they're the sales staff, and contact one of them, and they will help you get your message out. So quick and easy, and uh, lots of different options for you. We have that great ad is still up. And yeah, it's going to feature David Elliott, Vice President and Director of Haywood Securities, a mainstay in the Toronto Mining Investment Community, Canada. Uh, Serafina Yacono, Executive Chairman of Grand Columbia Gold. John McConnell, President and CEO of Victoria Gold. Of course, David Rosenberg, President, Chief Economist and Strategist at Rosenberg Research, who, if you haven't heard of David Rosenberg, go check out his 
Twitter, I believe it's Econ Guy Rosie, and uh, you'll see just how big of a deal he is. And we also have Mark Child from Condor Gold, who's chairman and CEO. We have Dr. Chris Hine, director of Pick and Pen, a mainstay in the European mining community. We have Peter Ma, COO of McEwen Mining, and of course, Rob McEwen, chairman and chief owner of McEwen Mining. So this is a mere two weeks away, 14 days, seven hours, and six minutes. So U.S. election a week from today, Global Mining Symposium two weeks from today. The calendar is filling up. And also, just a quick look at our sponsors. We have Thought Leadership Partner EY, Ernst & Young, and they are building a better working world, and they are making a push. I have seen them on Bloomberg recently, the CEO, and he was talking about ESG. So that will be really interesting to see what they do there. We have a silver sponsor, Hardline, big supporters of the Northern Miner and the newspaper. Uh, we always appreciate them. Go check out their website. You can, If you go to the northernminer.com slash GMS page, you can click on all these logos and they'll take you there. Hardline is a major supplier of mining equipment and they have some very cutting edge technology. We also have some presenting sponsors, Areba Plata Resource Corp, Condor Gold, Golden Arrow Resources, McEwen Mining, Micromine Intuitive Mining Solutions, Moneta Porcupine, Pear Tree, Renforth Resources, and San Marco Resources, and more to come, I'm sure. So that is all happening. You have two weeks to get it all together. Register for free, northernminer.com slash GMS. And speaking of events, we have the Mining Hall of Fame inductees have been announced, and that is always a big deal. The Northern Miner is on the board of the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. So we are going to open our new section with what is going on, who has been inducted. It's a very competitive thing. You have to be nominated, and I'm sure it's a very difficult decision for the board there. And we're also going to figure out what they're doing for the event. We're going to take a closer look at the article. I remember seeing something about it not taking place in the usual way. So we're going to have some news there. There are people that go every year and they are going to want to know what is happening with this year's Mining Hall of Fame dinner. A mainstay again on the calendar for all you mining professionals. And speaking of mining professionals, the young mining professionals have announced their 10 scholarships. And we're going to take a quick look at those people. And the new up-and-comers, and we see a lot of women on there, which is great. Exactly what this industry needs. And all this and more, we got geopolitics, the U.S. election, and even crypto. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter, at Northern Miner. You can find us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and also on YouTube, where we host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, and more. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we have the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame announcing the 2021 inductees. And this is by Vivian Danielson for the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. And this also appeared in this week's newspaper, which should be out as you hear this. So the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame has welcomed five new members at its July 2021 Gala Dinner and Induction Ceremony, an evening under the stars to be held at the prestigious Aga Khan Museum in Toronto. Usually this takes place in January due to the COVID-19 pandemic 
and the restrictions around gatherings, the gala dinner and induction ceremony will be organized in compliance with Ontario's Phase 3 guidelines, where 100 people are permitted to meet outdoors in a business venue with health protocols monitored and safe distancing implemented. The event is by invitation only, with no public sale of tickets. Now, I believe that is a change from previous years. I remember uh, telling people they could buy their table. You and your buddies could get a table at the Mining Canadian Mining Hall of Fame, make a weekend out of it. Uh, but this year, it looks like because of the pandemic, understandably, they are not going to be opening it up to the public. Invite only, only 100 people. I guess uh, if you get that little invite in the mail, you can sort of say you're doing something right. It also says here the Northern Miner is a co-founding member of the Hall of Fame, along with the Canadian Institute of Mining, Metallurgy and Petroleum, the Mining Association of Canada, and the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada. If you'd like to learn more, go to miningholloffame.ca. So on to the inductees. And of course, this is a pretty long article, so I'm just going to touch on each one of these guys, all five of them, just the first paragraph or so. So the first is Patricia Dillon, who was born in 1952. And it says here, she is unique in Canadian mining history as her achievements have encompassed leadership roles in industry associations and outreach initiatives to help the sector navigate social change and chart a more sustainable future. She joined Tech Resources as a geologist in 1979 and advanced to more senior roles as her organizational and communication skills came to the fore. The experience was a springboard for volunteer positions with the PDAC and CIM, and she served as committee chair, board member, and president of both organizations and was an early advocate of the Corporate Social Responsibility, also known as CSR, which is a precursor to ESG. And she also contributed to CSR initiatives of the Mining Association of Canada. Her greatest contribution is as a founder and driving force of Mining Matters, a charitable organization focused on educating young people and earth sciences, mineral industry, and their roles in society. That is a great charity, Mining Matters. I retweet them every so often. Whenever I see them, I agree with what limited knowledge really I have of what all these achievements really mean, I do agree that Mining Matters is probably her greatest achievement. She is the founder. And so, yeah, if you put in Mining Matters into your search on Twitter, you can see what they're up to. And it's a beautiful thing. So congratulations to Patricia Dillon and David Elliott, born in 1948, has also become an inductee, and he earned his reputation as one of Canada's preeminent resource financiers by funding more than 400 exploration and development companies and supporting and mentoring a generation of mining geoscientists. He is also a founding partner of Haywood Securities, where he demonstrated a rare ability to combine industry talent with quality projects and investment capital. Haywood grew from a small Vancouver firm with 15 employees in 1986 into one of Canada's premier mining merchant banks with 300 employees and $10 billion of assets under management. Elliot was a stalwart champion of junior mining, even in tough times, and there are definitely tough times in this industry, and an early supporter of many of its greatest successes, notably diamond discoveries in Canada and the Purina gold mine in Peru. He is known for his acumen, integrity, and core principle of investing in people over transactions. And he is also a generous supporter of worthy social 
and environmental causes. So congratulations to David Elliott. And moving on, we have William Gladstone Jowett, born in 1897, passed away in 1978. And he is being honored with the rare distinction of being an inductee into the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame and the Canadian Aviation Hall of Fame, where he was inducted in 1978. He was a pilot and flight instructor during the First World War, a mining engineer by profession, and a senior executive of Cominco, which continues as tech resources. He joined Cominco in 1927 and contributed to the discovery and development of many of its mines by combining, quote, eyes in the skies, aerial prospecting with boots on the ground engineering expertise. So isn't that interesting? I, th- I think so many things. I mean, you look at Steve Jobs, and he always said how when he dropped out of college but was auditing classes and he showed up to the design class and learned calligraphy, he always talked about how that was such a defining moment for him or a, such an important thing because that enabled him when he was putting word processor together and designing the Mac to really go that extra mile towards making the design. So my point here is the interrelation between disciplines. In other words, being interdisciplinary, so much value is created. And so as I go through these Canadian Mining Hall of Fame, just a quick, you know, in praise of being interdisciplinary. If we're not careful and we let society dictate to us as individuals what we should be doing, we kind of end up in a more and more specialized place, and that's very important. But what can happen is you lose perspective if you don't keep up your other learning. So here you can see it's not just for your own mental well-being. It is uh, beneficial to your work to maintain an interdisciplinary perspective. Sermon over. Let's continue on. So congratulations to William Gladstone Jowett. And you can read the full profiles on thenorthernminer.com. It's still on the homepage. It's a few stories down. Uh, We have a couple more here. Stephen D. Scott, born in 1941 and just passed away in 2019. And here it says the oceans of the world and volcanogenic massive sulfide deposits were sources of inspiration for Stephen Scott, one of Canada's most prolific and influential geoscientists of recent times. His legacy of scientific research is second to none and complemented by a stellar 40-year career at the University of Toronto. You know, we talk about the mining industry and branding. I really think it should push the scientific angle. I think that's just a winning, if if you're trying to market the mining industry, really push the scientific angle. A lot of these people are scientists, geologists, and here is one. So 40-year career at the University of Toronto, and Scott joined the U of T in 1969 and was then its youngest professor. A landmark achievement of his early career in research as an experimental geochemist was the development of the, quote, sphalerite geobarometer, end quote a tool for estimating temperature and pressure of formation or metamorphism of ore deposits to help predict the mineral content of VMS deposits. And later in the 1970s, he turned his attention to the genesis of seafloor massive sulfides and ultimately became a world-famous marine scientist. He was the first to recognize that seafloor deposits could be an economic resource 
and worked with several mining companies to per, to pursue this goal. Remember, check our Deep Green interview from a couple of episodes ago. That was uh, awesome. So continuing on, he participated in 31 oceanographic expeditions, published hundreds of peer-reviewed scientific papers, and educated students from around the world since labeled the, quote, Scott Diaspora. So you can read more about, like, that is this guy. How is he not in a Hall of Fame of some kind up until this point? Pretty impressive. Hundreds of peer-reviewed scientific papers. Think about that. So, very impressive. And we have another final one, Mary Edel Tyrell, who was born in 1870 and passed in 1945. I like how they do this. I I like how they go back in time. You know, it kind of gives hope to us all that maybe we'll, all our work will go recognized at some point. Maybe if it's long after we're passed away, but that You know, if you work hard and do something great, that maybe you will be recognized. Although you may not live to see it, you may still be recognized. Career options for women were limited in the 1890s when Edith Tyrell was introduced into Canada's fledgling mining industry as the young wife of Joseph Burr Tyrell. He was a renowned explorer and map maker with the Geological Survey of Canada when they met and often away on long expeditions. By the time they married in 1894... Edith Terrell had studied geology and experienced the separations endured by many mining families. In Toronto, during the First World War, she recognized the need for the wives of mining men to support each other. In 1921, she and 19 like-minded wives launched the Women's Association of the Mining Industry of Canada, WAMIC. Since then, WAMIC members have overseen the distribution of more than $1.8 million in charitable donations and support for students and educational institutions. It is fitting that a century later, Edith Tyrell be inducted into the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame, joining her husband, who was inducted in 1997, for his career accomplishments. And you can read more, and she has this beautiful picture. The resolution on that picture, wow. It's just like, uh, as a photograph, it is a stunning photograph. You'd be lucky to take that today. Check that out on northernminer.com. I'm almost tearful reading that. Like, it's it's simple but beautiful. So congratulations to Mary Edith Tyrell. From the other side, we salute you. So there you have it, the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame inductees. I'm sure there's going to be some slam dunk videos, and hopefully they will publish those online. But looks like nothing's going on until next July. So... Read more about it or go to miningholofame.ca for more details. And also, the Young Mining Professionals have announced their 2020 scholarship winners, and they got 10 people here. Our interview is long today, and so I don't want to go too long on this, but I'm going to list them off. We have Morgan Weller from the University of British Columbia. She's doing a Bachelor of Science in Geological Engineering, graduates in 2021, and she got $10,000 for the Peter Monk Scholarship, and it was sponsored by Barrett Gold. There is Lorena Ashevac from Acadia University, and she is doing a Bachelor of Science in Environmental Science and graduating in 2025. She also got $10,000 for Agnico Eagle's Perseverance Kajusissimainarnik Scholarship. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Apologies to everybody involved. I'm doing my best. Um, there is also the 
Also, Angus McInnes won at Queen's University, and he's doing a Bachelor of Applied Science in Mining Engineering, and he's graduating in 2022, and he won $5,000 from the TD Mining Capital Markets Scholarship. Caitlin Fisher from Queen's University is doing a Master's in Geological Engineering. Good for her. Uh, she was graduating in 2022, and she also won $5,000 for the TD Woman in Mining Scholarship. And John Bing from the University of Calgary, Bachelor of Science in Geology, graduates in 2021, and he won $4,000 from the Yamana Student in Mining Scholarship. Rim Kuider from McGill University, Bachelor of Applied Science in Mining Engineering, graduates in 2021, and she got $2,500 from the Kinross Student in Mining Scholarship. Amika Morris from Queen's University, Bachelor of Applied Science in Mining Engineering, graduates in 2022, and she got $2,500 from the Kinross Student in Mining Scholarship. And just a f- three more here. We have Bryn Upham from the University of Alberta. He's doing a Bachelor of Applied Science in Mining Engineering and graduates in 2021, and he got $2,500 from the Kinross Student in Mining Scholarship. Connor Hamley from Queen's University, Bachelor of Applied Science in Mining Engineering, graduates 2021, also got $2,500 from the Kinross Student in Mining Scholarship. And finally, we have Pedro Pablo Vasquez from Laurentian University, doctoral student in Natural Resource Engineering. He graduates in 2021, and he got $1,000 from the Humana Student in Mining Scholarship. Congratulations all. Very cool from the young mining professionals supporting the next generation. And you can read more about that. See their cool pictures. We made a nice little montage here on the Northern Miner website. Now, it's turning into a long show, so we're going to kind of run through these stories a little bit faster than normal. Norgold and Shandong have intensified their bidding war for cardinal resources. And this is by Cecilia Jamasmiamining.com. And the long and the short of it is it's been, I think it's been, six months that these guys, that uh, Russia's Norgold and China's Shandong have been bidding for this cardinal uh, Australian company, which is based in Africa, and it's in Ghana. So it's pretty rare that you see Russia and China going at it like this. It's sort of like my theory on TMAC that this is more than about gold. I think it's also about setting up shop and having a place. It's almost like having an informal embassy. It's a place to set up shop. I don't know about the Russian side of it. It looks like it's run by a, there's an oligarch at Norgold. I don't know too much about this stuff, but I think there's more than gold going on here, just a theory. But I think it also shows how desperately these countries want gold. So that kind of feeds into our conversation with Jeffrey Christian. And I'm just going to take a look at the, we're going to get in the weeds just for a couple of minutes here because basically what's going on here is there's a legal issue now because Norgold has contacted Australia's takeovers panel and accuses Cardinal of misleading shareholders. And we've seen this in another takeover where Shandong made the initial move and then there was a subsequent move by a, a competing bid and the miners wanted to stay with Shandong. And it all seems kind of weird because the competing bid is higher. 
I've seen this narrative before, and it seems to be playing out again, which makes you wonder, what is not being said here? What is not being shared? Paragraph 3, Cardinal's board, which has openly shown its preference for the Chinese bidder, qualified Norgold's move as, quote, an attempt to cruel the auction for control of Cardinal and has significant potential to deprive Cardinal shareholders of additional value. So it's kind of a complicated story. If you really want to go into detail, read it on thenorthernminer.com. But basically, Norgold feels that Cardinal is not being clear, is misleading things so that Shandong gets the advantage and can take over Cardinal. And Norgold is raising the issue with Australian takeover regulators. And so a lot is hinging on wording and communications. Interestingly, neither side is backing down on this. It's going to be very interesting to see who ends up with it and what is said by the other side. Also, we have the story Polyus which is Russia's top gold producer, which you don't hear much about. It says it has the world's largest reserves at its Siberian gold deposit called Sukhoi Log. So that is pretty interesting. It says here that the deposit holds 40 million ounces. I mean, you do the math on that. The proven gold reserves. So let's just back of the envelope, $2,000 US gold, let's say. So that would be... 40 million times 2,000, is that $80 billion of gold is in there? Now you have to take it out. So there's, uh, you know, that's a cost and that can be, you know, three quarters of your cost. So you can't go overboard on that. They're basically saying there's $80 billion of gold in the ground there, according to my back of the envelope calculation. So you can read more about that on northernminer.com. Very interesting story. Barrick, who's been at loggerheads with the government of Tanzania for the last three years, under Mark Bristow's leadership, has seems to have smoothed everything over, and they have just been granted 10 new exploration licenses in Tanzania. And it seems like Barrick's strategy here is to be generous and not try and get every last dime you can out of these governments, not get the best deal possible. Give them half and they're going to be good to you. And that's what it looks like is happening here. So Barrick and Tanzania have a joint venture basically under Twiga Minerals. And so last year, Twiga agreed to pay the Tanzanian government $300 million to settle all previous disputes. Again, we could say that's under Mark Bristow. And then get this, the deal also included the lifting of a concentrate export ban and the sharing of future economic benefits from barracks operations in the country on a 50-50 basis. I think we're going to see this more and more because I think from Mark Bristow's perspective, CEO of Barrick, would you rather be facing what you're facing in PNG where you lose potentially the entire mine or are you just going to give them half? It's like any sort of business principle. Give them a stake. And they're going to want to see your project succeed. You give them a lot, they're really going to want to see your project succeed. And maybe the economics of that are just as good. And the PR side of it, like, look at what he doesn't have to spend on lawyers if he starts getting this stuff sorted out. And let's just see what he says. Uh, we have a quote from Mark Bristow. We are gearing up to potentially make North Mara and Bullion Hulu into a combined tier one complex capable of producing at least 500,000 ounces of gold annually 
for more than 10 years in the lower half of the industry's cost profile. So 500,000 ounces annually for 10 years. And you think of Barrick's 10-year plan, you think about how right now their goal is 5 million ounces per year. So this would amount to 10% of their annual gold production goal. So very interesting. Finally, just another story with Barrick that I want to touch on. Barrick and Nova Gold are drilling the large-scale Donlin project in Alaska. And a lot of people have written this project off, but it looks like Barrick is continuing with it. And uh, they are drilling in Alaska. And it is the largest drill campaign at the project in 12 years. Again, you take Mark Bristow's perspective He's probably thinking to himself, if this thing has anything like it might have, it's worth drilling because it's in Alaska. The U.S. government should be pretty easy to deal with. And so even if it costs a little more to extract this stuff, not going to be any jurisdictional risk, as they say, although you never know uh, with the EPA or whatever. And just a couple of drill results from it. They intersected 7 meters of 43.1 grams gold, starting from 179 meters, including 3 meters of 90.5 grams gold. They cut 20 meters of 11.3 grams gold from 49 meters down hole, including a sub-interval of 7 meters of 25 grams gold. So it sounds like there's something there. So that's the latest on Barrick and Nova Gold in Alaska. Again, like on Twitter, I've seen people kind of mock this project and mock Nova Gold, but they're moving ahead. And I'm going to cap it on this final story. I'm just going to read the headline, Global Platinum Demand to Decline 7% in 2020. And this is according to Global Data. And they're attributing it to the COVID-19 pandemic, which is driving lower demand from the auto and jewelry sector. So let's see, because I bring up platinum with Jeffrey Christian in the interview. I've been talking about it on the show. I'm calling it the ignored metal. And so platinum production is to decline 7% in 2020. And with that, let's take a look at metal prices. And turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices. Each and every week, gold is trading at $1,899.46. That is a mere dollar lower than last week's quote. Silver is 10 cents lower at $24.29 per ounce. And platinum is $22 higher at $878.28 per ounce. And palladium is $12 higher at $2,366.47 per ounce. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is up $0.07 at $3.12 per pound. Aluminum is down $0.02 at $0.83 per pound. Lead is up a penny at $0.81 per pound. Nickel is up $0.07 at $7.15 per pound. Tin is up $0.07 at $8.41 per pound. 
Cobalt is down a penny at $14.96 per pound, and zinc is up $0.06 cents at $1.16 per pound. That is the highest quote we've had on zinc in a year and a half, and by a penny. The highest was $1.15 a year and a half ago. So very interesting moves in the metal markets. Gold and silver on a weekly basis from when we do this show is basically unchanged. Amazingly close to last week's quote, and platinum and palladium edge a bit higher. Copper strong at $3.12, nickel strong at $7.15, and tin also strong, and zinc showing strength. So some strength in the industrial metals, precious metals, steady and edging higher. So with that, those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have my interview with Jeffrey Christian from CPM Group. And Jeffrey Christian is one of the leading commodities market research analysts, and he's a consultant, and he does asset management. And CPM Group is an investment banking firm. And in the gold market, he is one of the top people you can interview if you've never heard him before. And We have interviewed him at our events in the past, and we hope to interview him again in the future. I hope you enjoy this, and I'll see you on the other side. Joining me now is uh, what I like to call one of the soberest minds in the in the precious metals space, Jeffrey Christian from CPM Group. And uh, Jeffrey Christian, thanks for joining the podcast. You're welcome. I love working with the Northern Miner. Oh, great. Yeah, we love working with you too. Uh, yeah, I, I, as a, I've been at the Northern Miner for seven or eight years, but I've been following your work for 10 or 11. So uh, it's great to have you on. And uh, we're a week away a week and a day away from the election, and it's really exciting times out there with all the COVID and the stimulus and all these huge debts that are being racked up. So I wanted to interview you and get your take on things. So where do you see the precious metals market uh, You know, a week before the election and just here we are in the fall of 2020? Where are we? Well, we're in a place where, you know, for, well, when you say precious metals markets, we have to disaggregate because gold is one thing, silver is another thing, and platinum and plating are a third thing. Uh, the gold market and the silver market and the world economy and other financial markets collectively are all hostage to the political drama. And, and the, the main political drama is the U.S. election, not just for the president, but for the Senate. Uh, and but there's also Brexit out there. There's the U.S.-China hostilities. There's Russia's hostilities with the world. There's U.S. hostilities with the world. There's a big glob of political problems that the world's confronting. We have the pandemic, and then we have the economic consequences of those two problems: the political and the, the public health issues. And so the markets are all beholden to that. And what's going on. And honestly, I do believe it's too close to tell what will happen both in the senatorial races and the presidential race. 
uh, it looks right now as if the Democrats could take the Senate and the presidency, but I don't think that that's a foregone conclusion. Uh, one of my clients and counterparts gave me a very interesting study about how Republicans tend to lie more about who they're voting for than independents or Democrats because they're usually embarrassed. You know? right. And right. you saw that in 2016. You saw that in earlier elections, too. Uh, so I think it's too close to tell. But I think that there'll be some volatility. There has been some volatility leading up to it. I wouldn't be surprised to see a number of uh, black um, news coming out, both against Trump and Biden. Obviously, Trump seems to have a lot more bad things that you could say about him than Biden. Uh, you know, I think the worst thing that you can honestly say about Biden is that he's a lifelong Washington politician. Uh, you know, but uh, uh, and everything else is nonsense. Uh, but but I think that you could see some issues in the next eight days uh, over the next couple months up until December 16th when the election has to be decided, uh, even if it's by the Supreme Court, I think you could see some a lot of uncertainty. And that will coincide with the move toward Brexit. Uh, and then even beyond that, you go back to the longer term issues, which are all those political and economic and financial market problems that the world faces that are not being adequately addressed. And um, it almost doesn't matter who wins in Washington. You're probably not going to see uh, ethical and intelligent uh, resolution to those problems. Yeah, I, th I think there's probably a lot of people that would agree with you on that point. And so in terms of gold and let's say silver, but maybe primarily gold, are you of the opinion as kind of a lifelong, uh, you've d dedicated your career to the precious metals, do you see in a sense, a correlation between disaster and bad news and it being good for gold? Because I've been watching that and I don't always see that direct correlation that people tend to want to make. Is that an oversimplification that people true? It's an oversimplification. Um, and the way I say it when people ask me questions and when we used to have conferences, uh, um, those political events that matter to gold, matter to gold. And I have a slide with like 28 things that have occurred over the last 30, 40 years that didn't have an effect on gold or had the opposite effect on gold that people thought. And there's a great deal of oversimplification across financial markets, but especially in the gold and silver markets because of their relatively unregulated nature. Uh, and 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 their bel the belief structure that surrounds gold and silver to a lesser extent. You know there are a lot of beliefs as opposed to knowledge uh, in there, and mm -hmm. it's a gross oversimplification. But you know, bad things that affect a large number of people tend to be positive for gold. And we I joke with my wife and others that you know I'm something like an arms dealer. You know, mm -hmm. bad times are good for me. If you look right, at the best right. times in my career, 1979 to 1982, yeah, 1985 to 1988, uh, 2000 to 2 to 2012, you know, um, bad things tend to cause people to want to own gold. 
And when you get into a situation, you know, in 2000, we issued a buy recommendation and we said, this is a long-term buy recommendation. If you look at my buy recommendations from 1980 to 2000, they lasted a year or two or three. But in 2000, we're saying that the economic and political environment going forward is going to be more hostile than it was in 79, 80. And that this is going to push gold prices. They were about $270, $280 at the time. This is going to push gold prices far past the $850 peak in 1980. And it's going to go on not for years, but for decades. And we are 20 years into this cyclical or secular upward shift in the investment demand curve. You know, what's happened since 2000 has been crisis after crisis and a devolution of the political structure, uh, the post-war political structure, the post-war uh, currency structure, the post-war financial markets. It's been one problem after another on top of them, many of which haven't gone resolved, but gotten resolved, but have gone unresolved and gotten worse and have been joined and coupled with others. And, and so you've got an increasingly worse environment. And in that environment, investors no longer buy, you know, 20 million ounces, 25 million ounces when things are bad for a year or two, and then they go back to buying 10 million ounces. Investors have been buying 20 million ounces for most years or 30 or 40 million ounces for most years since 2002. So you've had this upward shift in the investment demand curve with more investors able and actually buying more gold at higher prices for a longer period of time in more parts of the world than ever before in history. And for that to change, that secular upward movement in investment demand for gold, which pushes the price higher, mm -hmm. um, for that to change, the economic and political environment has to change. And you know, I'm not an optimist. I'm not a pessimist. I'm a realist. So I'll be long gold for the foreseeable future. <laughs> right. So you don't see necessarily, do you have a target in a sense, how long you see this going for? Is it, or is it basically kind of uh, event dependent where if things change, then your forecasts change. But as long as yeah. things stay that, the way they are, I'm going to say gold is a great place to be or a smart place to be. It's, there's a cyclicality built within to that secular upward shift. So, you know, 2000 to 2012, you were in a cyclical upward part of that movement. In January 2012, we issued a report that said a time to sell. And we told our clients, you know, gold, silver, platinum, palladium, if you own them, Now's a good time to either sell them or buy puts against them because we think for the next three to five years, the prices will be weaker before we enter into a new upward leg on the basis within. We think we're halfway through this cyclical upward move. So we've gone from 1200 to 2000. We're about 1900 as we're talking today. Our view is that this goes until 2023, 2025. And the gold price might get to 2800 on an annual average basis. Sure. It's a much higher intraday basis. You know, yeah. In, in 1980, the price peaked at 850, but the average price was 612. Yeah. yeah. yeah so, this... But, you know, we, we can, we have in our main economic scenario that the price then comes down after 2025 on a cyclical basis while the secular bull market continues. And the secular mm -hmm. bull market continues because the big issues like currency regime change 
and uh, rebalancing of political and economic and financial power in the world. Those things are not going to be resolved in one year, three years, five years, 10 years. I mean, if you look at the cyclical, uh, the currency regime, that's something that, you know, we've been talking to central banks since 1980, 81 about, uh, and everybody has talked about it. And the 1980 is going to take decades to unfold. And in 2000, they're 20, they're saying this is going to take decades to unfold because you can't make a big shift in the international currency regime uh, in a nonviolent way quickly. Yeah. It, it really does seem like the whole precious metals conversation, in a sense, it seems like it's more about the dollar than anything else. Like, is that the kind of, I mean, people talk about gold as a store of value, but in a sense, the dollar seems to me to be the, the main driver behind precious metals more than anything and say the gold trade and say even, you know, crypto and whatever. Uh, when I see, say, the commodities going higher, I mean, you see the dollar go down. How do you kind of frame that relationship within your mind? Like, I see it as a dollar thing, but how, how do you see it? Uh, rather than copper being so popular, it's, uh, how do you frame that? The dollar and gold. Gold doesn't trade against the dollar. Gold trades against currency markets. So in the mid-90s, you saw the dollar fall out of favor among investors globally. And everybody moving into the got to be too expensive and all of a sudden gold rose like $40 because people are saying, okay, I don't like the dollar, but I don't like the Deutschmark, so let me park money in gold. And then uh, Carl Otto Pohl, who was the Bundesbank chairman at the time, came out and said, the Bundesbank does not think that the, that the Deutschmark is overvalued, at which point everybody sold their gold and went back into the Deutschmark. Uh, yeah, so... Gold trades against currency markets. If there's a currency of choice, uh, investors will tend to move toward that. But if there isn't a currency of choice, they'll, they'll park some money in gold and silver. And that's what's happening right now. And this is true across the spectrum of investors. So you have short-term investors who are looking at the next five days, five, two months, long-term investors. And situation where investors are looking at the currency markets, they say the dollar yeah, is vulnerable. But if you look at it from an economist perspective, you know, for the dollar to fall sharply, you'd have to have a tremendous faith in the euro. Yeah. Right. And, and you'd have to have several other things that just don't exist right now. <laughs> That's a nice way of uh, saying that I don't have faith in the, in the euro uh, zone economically being economically competitive. So there are times, but the other thing is gold and the dollar are the two reserve assets or safe haven assets of choice. So you'll find times like just recently where the dollar and gold are both rising because investors are getting out of everything else. You'll find other times where they're moving, they're both falling together because it's a risk off transaction if we can use the vernacular of the market. See, take my money out of dollar-based assets and out of gold, and I'm going to put them in stocks and, and bonds and stuff like that. And then you'll find other times. If you look at it over time, you know, 1968, when the gold price was freed to float to now, it's about a negative 34% correlation. 
So if you say, oh, gold trades against a dollar and, and I'm going to trade gold based on where the dollar is moving, you're going to lose 66% of the time. Hmm. Uh, but the relate there is a relationship, but it's not highly correlated on a negative basis. And it's much more complicated. And one of the things that like in the last couple of weeks, we've been saying repeatedly to our clients and others who would listen, um, it's not that gold's reacting to the dollar. Gold and the dollar are reacting to the same independent variables that are not in that equation. Okay, so it's complicated than that, in other it's words, and it's not, it's, it's more than two people in the room, so to speak. It's not just yeah. the gold and the dollar. There's a whole bunch going on that relates to yeah. that relationship. My work since the 70s shows, tells me that interest rates, real interest rates are probably the ultimate determinant of gold prices. But the correlation between changes in gold prices and changes in real interest rates, apples to apples, is zero, right? You know that changes in real interest rates are very important, not only to gold, but every other asset, because that's the benchmark for, is this worth anything? Um, but it's such a complicated relationship, it can't be econ econometrically modeled effectively. Okay, and just a last point on that. So how do you measure real interest rates? Do you simply take the official inflation versus uh, the U.S. 10-year treasury? Like, is, is, like what, is the ten, what is real interest rates for you? We use different metrics, but mostly what we do is year treasuries and one-year treasuries less U.S. CPI. Okay, uh, so take the official number. And, and so you buy, in a sense, the CPI number that they give. You know, it's funny, I was at one of these gold bug conferences many years ago, and I said, how many of you, you know, think that the CPI is cooked? And, you know, a whole bunch of them raised their hands. <laughs> and then I lifted up, I held up a 160-page document, and I said, any of you recognize this as what it is? And they said, no, no one. So this is the monthly U.S. government CPI report. It's 160 pages long, and it explains why that, how that number was determined. Yeah, and no one knew it. I mean, that's one of the great things about gold and financial markets in general is you can have people who are completely ignorant of money and banking, finance 101, gold supply demand fundamentals, but they'll hold themselves out as the absolute authority. You know? yeah, and if you true. know how the CPI is created, A, you'll know its flaws, and B, you'll know that despite its flaws, it's clearly not being manipulated because it's being mm. run by a bunch of people who see their jobs as being agnostic clerks. Hmm. Very interesting. Now, um, on this whole idea of manipulation, I assume you saw a story on JP Morgan and the big fine they got, uh, I think it was from the SEC or CFTC, whoever it was, for spoofing. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and, and as I was telling you before the show, I remember you from way back uh, on the great gold debate on Jim Paplava's Financial Sense News Hour with Bill Murphy and Gata, and the guys at Gata. In a sense, you've always been fighting these sort of conspiratorial views on the gold market that it's being manipulated and the silver market. So, when you see the J.P. Morgan story, I thought to myself, well. That's why I actually called you or emailed you. It's like, what does Jeffrey Christian have to say about this? So, so I'm asking you now, what do you have to say about that? Like, does it ratify the views or are they wrong? 
It, the, okay, the, first off, the settlement was with the SEC and the CFTC, with the U.S. Treasury, you know, uh, being somewhat involved. And it's very important to understand it's the SEC and the CFTC. And, and the other thing that's very important is that it was about spoofing. And if you look at it, J.P. Morgan's major thing was that they failed to monitor and provide significant, sufficient oversight to traders, allowing those traders to spoof and spoof regularly for a long period of time. And we'll come back to spoofing in a second. I used to have a slide when people would ask me about this. I said, you know, if you go back, big word, you know, all caps, conspiracy. There's this grand conspiracy to, uh, on the part of governments and central banks and major banks around the world. And when J.P. Morgan is buying or selling gold, they're doing it on behalf of the Fed. And right. the purpose is to right. suppress the gold price or the silver price. All Everybody, of which, and everybody's in league with each other. Right. Everything that it supports that argument is nonsense and is easily dismantled, as I did not only with the Jim Puplava interview, but I did a live debate with uh, Bill Murphy a couple years later at the Silver Summit uh, that Kitco broadcast, and it's still out there on the YouTube someplace. You know, there's no evidence of such a conspiracy. There's enormous amounts of evidence that such a conspiracy does not exist. Um, so then... When that became clear, it was like, well, it's smaller conspiracies. Then it was, well, it's market manipulation. And you start seeing problems and fines, you know, in, in market manipulation in the fixed income markets, in the currency markets, and then in the precious metals markets. And now it's spoofing. So it gets smaller and smaller. And what you're seeing is that people are regulating these markets better and they're finding that spoofing goes on. Now, that's nothing new. I mean, if you read Charles Dickens, you know that spoofing has been around as long as established markets in Europe. And they probably existed in Japan and China prior to that. You know, So spoofing occurs across financial markets. Uh, and, and if you look at the J.P. Morgan settlement, most of what they found was on the fixed income and equity side. And the precious metals was a relatively smaller thing. So what you're finding is spoofing. Then you can argue that if there was this grand conspiracy, your management of Morgan were involved in trying to manipulate the price, they would not allow those junior traders to spoof, you know, because you're risking the whole big mashugala for a small trade. And, and so you can argue that actually that spoofing probably is prima facie evidence that a grand conspiracy doesn't exist. Now, all of that is logical and will hold up in a court of law, but none of it would convince the true believers in gold conspiracies because their beliefs are not based on fact. Their their beliefs are based on 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 a religion. And you know, the guy who Eric Hoffer quoted uh, coined the term true believers, and he said, for a true believer to change his beliefs based on evidence or our actual uh, facts is heresy. Right. So right. You, you know, if you want to change a true believer's belief in conspiracy theories, you have to be a psychiatrist or a psychologist, not an economist. Yeah, no, nobody's dropping their religion based on a rational argument. Right. 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 Exactly. Um, okay, so very interesting. So, yeah, so I'm glad we covered that. Now, did you also see this report by, there's a little news story a couple of weeks ago 
Goldman Sachs and saying basically the tenor of the article was short the dollar, buy silver. Did you see that? And what are your comments? Um, I, I saw that and I saw the article. We are bullish on silver. We're probably less bullish on silver than Goldman, but then we probably know more about the silver market than Goldman does. And we, you know, and we for those who don't know, I used to run the commodities research department at Goldman Sachs. And in 1986, Goldman said, oh, metals are dead as an investment. Let's get rid of our metals desk or half of it. And I took that opportunity to buy the commodities research department and set up CPM Group because I wanted to be an independent research advisor as opposed to part of a bank. Um, and and um, it, it's funny because I could, we just, We've done a lot of work with the World Bank and the IMF over the years, and 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 there was an economist there who used to introduce me to his colleagues uh, when we were working on a various projects, starting to work on various projects. And he'd say, "Yeah, this is Jeff Christian. We're going to be working with him on this project." And understand, he quit Goldman Sachs, i.e., be very careful because he's not an organization man. Okay. okay. <laughs> but, uh, Independent. Uh, we are bullish on silver. Mm -hmm. probably less bullish on it than they are. And our bullishness is over a three to five year horizon, not one to two years. And we're not bearish on the dollar because for the dollar to fall, you have to have greater belief in the political and economic outlook and strength of Europe and other parts of the world. You know, the dollar is, is reciprocal with other currencies. And, and, and if you look, the dollar actually has held up very well. I mean, there was some short-term decline in the last mm -hmm. few months, and that decline took it back to the levels that we saw at the beginning of the year, so, if I recall correctly. You know? So Interesting. the dollar has a long future, and the world can't dump the dollar because there are too many dollars in circulation. Yeah. How long does this go on for, though? I mean, because it seems like a kind of argument that you could, like, when does that argument fail, right? Uh, how many trillions can they keep printing or, or quote-unquote printing before that argument starts to break down? Like, how far can they push this thing? I, I don't know if you know the answer to that question, but... Well, it, I, there, there are several answers, you know, and one is, if you look at the U.S. economy and the budget deficits and the trade deficits, it's really sad because... These things very easily and painlessly uh, if we had the political will, but we don't have the political will in the United States, so it's not going to get fixed. Uh, but, you know, you could have a scenario where the U.S. fixes itself and the dollar stays as the de facto reserve currency for the indefinite future. In, in lieu of that future, that scenario where the U.S. Had, you know, develops a spine, uh, <laughs> And, and exerts its political the political will needed to solve these problems. Uh, in lieu of that, th this could go on for decades, and it has already gone on for decades. I mean, by 2000, 2001, central banks and economists at central banks, the monetary authorities and the IMF and the World Bank and the United Nations, the people around the world were talking about what replaces the U.S. dollar in the next international currency regime. And the view then was this is decade, this will take decades to execute. And, you know, 40 years down the road, it's 
still decades away. And in fact, it's even more decades away because the dollar's hegemonic power in the global currency system has become that much larger. But I'll tell you an anecdote. In 2001, we had a big crisis. You know, NASDAQ fell 86%. The New York Stock Exchange fell 43%. We went into a recession. Uh, there were all kinds of problems there. And there was a failure in the international financial currency, uh, financial regulatory market regime. And, and there was also failures in the international currency regime. And a lot of that, well, it led to Sarbanes-Oxley. It led to changes in, in UK and EU uh, financial market regulations and stuff. And in this environment, in, in 2002, the Bank of England convened a meeting of central bankers, monetary authorities, economists, advisors, and such, in a really nice estate outside of London. And the head of foreign exchange management at the Bank of England introduced, you know, welcomed everybody and said, we are here because we know that the international financial regulatory regime must change and it mm -hmm. must be coordinated. Right now, there is no international financial regime. Everybody has different ones. And so the banks go wherever the regulations the lightest. Um, and we also need to talk about the international currency regime. And he said then, I understand governments of the world have never convened a meeting like this in peacetime and agreed on a future financial regulatory regime. Financial regimes have always been built on the ashes of cataclysms. The current one was built in Bretton Woods at, toward the end of World War II, where the victors said, this is how we're going to go forward as a world. And mm -hmm. prior to that, there was, uh, there was an agreement at the end of World War I. And, right. and he said, so while this is a very noble effort, we must be cognizant of the probability that we will not come up with a future globally acceptable financial currency regime. That was 2002, 18 years ago, and umpteen crises away. <laughs> you know? sure. I mean, the budget yeah. deficit in the United States, the, the debt, global, the U.S. debt was probably something like $10 billion, trillion at the time. Now it's like $30 trillion. You know, so that, you know, how it gets resolved is very difficult. And there are people out there who say this can only be resolved by fire and there's going to be World War III, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then there are a lot of other people who say, well, you know, my granddad told me about World War II, and I want to work really hard to try to find a way to peacefully resolve these issues. You know, and, and I'm, I'm in that group you know, of people who would like to see international cooperation work these things out. And as I said, a lot of financial and economic issues could be worked out relatively painlessly, at least in the United States, more painful elsewhere. Uh, but the likelihood of that happening depends on major reforms in the political process, which I do not see on the horizon. Interesting. So when the IMF came out like a week ago, two weeks ago, I think it was a week ago on uh, calling for a new Bretton Woods moment, uh, that uh, for you, that's probably not going to result in anything. Would that well, be a fair characterization? It was October 15th, uh, and they didn't call for a new Bretton Woods moment. If you look at the speech, what they said was, we are facing a new Bretton Woods moment. Mm -hmm. and this is like where we were in 1944, 1945, 
when we got together in, in New Hampshire and said, okay, World War II is drawing to a close. How are we going to rebuild the world? And what we need is international organizations. We need the United Nations to try to be there to resolve political problems. We need uh, the World Bank to be there as a, the, the World Bank's full name is the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Mm -hmm. It was designed to help redevelop not only Europe, but all of Asia, which was devastated by the war. Uh, and International Monetary uh, Fund and mm -hmm. the Bretton Woods currency regime. So all of that stuff was built in the ashes of World War II. And what the World Bank uh, and IMF was, uh, what the IMF person was saying was, that's where we are now. We're at a cataclysmic period of time that's been made worse by the pandemic. And really, this is where international cooperation is most important. Mm -hmm. And unlike 1944-1945, we do not have a strong, intelligently run United States government to get everybody together and say, hey, guys, let's work this out. In fact, the U.S. government has been working for decades to postpone that kind of discussion. Sure. I mean, and it would seem because the current, uh, for lack of a better word, regime works in the favor of right. uh, the holder of the world's reserve currency. Mm -hmm. Fair? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Now, I... Uh, I don't want to take too much of your time here, but as far as this idea of gold as a store of value, we are seeing in Argentina, Brazil, Turkey, and Lebanon, we're seeing currencies fall. And I'm curious on how you see, say, this cryptocurrency Bitcoin thing, because you see a lot of people gain out of, of their local currency, and they're going into Bitcoin. And they like it because it's easy. I mean, even we had this MicroStrategy CEO, I don't know if you heard about him, Michael Saylor, he put in like $150 million company treasury into Bitcoin. And he said, it's so much easier than putting it into gold because I don't need to pay $250,000 to have it shipped over and whatever. So I'm just curious in how you see that relationship, how you see Bitcoin, distributed ledgers, uh, what's your yeah. take? So the first thing is the guy who thought it would cost $250,000 to have gold shipped over has no clue how to buy gold effectively. And he's listening to banks and brokers who are saying, oh, here's a stooge who doesn't know anything about gold. And we can take hundreds of thousands of dollars for services that probably should cost tens of thousands of dollars. And CPM Group helps institutional investors, family offices, high net worth individuals build gold and silver positions. And we do it in a very cost-effective way. And we basically avoid almost all banks and broker and, and dealers. I mean, you know, so we help bring a brutal uh, efficiency to gold and silver transactions. And we have it stored in the proper places in the proper forms so that you have liquidity. You can also, in some cases, lease it out and earn interest on it. And you can earn more interest on gold now than you can on U.S. Treasuries. Uh, so it's a very interesting thing. So that, yeah. but, but let's talk about cryptos. Cryptos are the anti-gold. Yeah. If gold is no one else's liability, it's a tangible asset that you can store and hold and have. And its value is based fully and completely 
on people's faith in gold. National currencies are paper assets with unlimited supply, and they are the based on the full faith and credit of those countries issuing them. And gold, going back to gold, yeah, it's got a limited, a geologically limited supply. There's an enormous amount of gold out there, but it's got a geologically limited supply. Cryptocurrencies are the opposite. They don't exist except as an idea, a chit on the internet. They can disappear immediately. They are based on the full faith in them. There's nobody else standing behind them. There's no government. When you've seen things like cryptocurrency problems, like in Japan, people stand around on the Ginza and they say, who do we complain to? And the answer is nobody. It's, you know, <laughs> you just bought a pet rock. You know, congratulations. Um, and while they say there's limited supply, it's limited because the guy who you don't know, because it's anonymous, says these are the rules I've, I've made that limit the supply. And he can change that with a flip of a switch the same way national central banks can say, oh, I think I'm going to issue $3 trillion worth of money. So cryptocurrencies are the antithesis of gold. Uh, they're probably going to be a whole lot of losses in the cryptocurrency markets going forward. Uh, and if an investor really understands what he's buying, he's going to buy gold as a long-term store of value and not cryptocurrencies. Because yeah, sure, go ahead. it's just, it's, it, you know, gold is a tangible asset. That's no one's liability. That has a somewhat limited geologic supply and it's been around for decades and you're not going to have somebody say, oh, well, whoop, I pulled the switch on, on that cryptocurrency. Now, I'm a big believer in distributed ledger protocol. It has a lot of work to do before it's full foolproof. Uh, you know, you, you have more problems with, uh, cryptocurrencies now than you do with the SWIFT system in terms of percentage of, of transactions that go wrong or disappear or occurrences of graft and scams. Uh, but I like distributed ledger protocol as the basis of future financial transactions, but it has a lot of time to come. I do think that national currency will ultimately go into cryptocurrencies simply because that's the logical progression from paper to computer chips to cryptos. But I think there'll be national currencies so that you have them based on the full faith and credit of someone you can identify. Right. I mean, this is the thing with Bitcoin. I mean, what the Bitcoiners would say is the greatness of Bitcoin is the fact that nobody can control it. In a sense, it's a a free currency and nobody can control. I, I think you're right about all these other tokens and anything like Ethereum and all of these other cryptos, cryptocurrencies, they can be controlled, a lot of them, most of them, by some kind of central organization. Uh, Bitcoiners, though, with Bitcoin, it is does seem a little bit special in the sense that nobody can control it and it does have this kind of limited scarcity. And, and the, the, uh, just to put their point, I think they would say, I mean, what they say is, you know, people say, well, who, what's backing Bitcoin? And they would say, well, what's backing gold? It's sentiment. Now, now yeah. how do you respond to that? Well, first off, there's a fallacy there. And it's interesting because it's the same issue that is the difference between human intelligence and artificial intelligence. You know, you have an axiom. 
And in the case of Bitcoins, the axiom is inaccurate. There is someone there. There is a man behind the curtain. And it looks like nobody can control it, but the man behind the curtain can flip a switch and change it or take it all away in a moment's notice. He knows who he is. Well, he does. All right. So that's a big problem, even with Bitcoin. There is ultimately somebody there. And because it's an axiom that he's not there, people involved in Bitcoins assume he's not there. But that's a false axiom. Gold is based, as I said, the value is based on the full faith in gold. You know, why was gold worth $250, $260 in 1999, 2000, but $2,000 this year? Because in 1999, 2000, a lot of people foolishly believed in what was called the new economic paradigm. We had had 20 years of relatively strong growth, low inflation, uh, low interest rates uh, for the last 10 years of that, strong growth in productivity, computerization, deregulation, globalization. You had a lot of really powerful economic conditions pushing strong growth for 20 years. And in that environment, a lot of people said, why do I need gold? Hmm. Or they said, I was stupid enough to buy gold at $600, $700, $800 in 1980, and I held on to it because I thought the price would get back there, and I'm giving up the ghost. Or my father was stupid enough to buy gold at $600, and I have to settle up his estate, so let me sell the gold and keep the IBM shares because IBM will last forever, but gold, what's gold? So in 1999, 2000, gold was worth $250 because there was great faith in the global economy and the U.S. government. And at that time, the U.S. government was running uh, budget surpluses and over four years paid down about a trillion dollars of its debt. And the dollar was rising. Yeah, right. right. We had a new economic paradigm. We had strong growth. There were people who actually believed the stock market would go from $10,000 to $40,000 in a matter of months. Mm -hmm. So why on gold? So gold was worth $250. Gold prices are not stable over time. The idea of a gold constant, real or nominal, is nonsense. It's not based on facts. You know, if you look at real gold prices since they were allowed to float 1968, they've they've gone on an index basis between 100 and 800. So you have this tremendous volatility in gold prices. It's not that you buy gold and its purchasing power stays the same. It's that you buy gold, you add it to your portfolio, and you diversify both the denominator and the numerator of your wealth, as well as your portfolio, which is a subset of your wealth. And you have a diversified portfolio that, as I said, has zero correlation. Part of it has zero correlation to interest rates. Part of it has negative 34% correlation with, with the dollar and, 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 and about a 17% or negative 17% correlation, I think, with stocks. So it helps smooth out the volatility of your wealth. Mm-hmm. Shit hits the fan and you have to flee your country. Your gold may fall in value, but not as much as other places. If you go back to Thailand in 1997, when the Asian currency crisis hit, a lot of people who had traditionally owned gold had sold their gold and they were investing in the, the Thai stock market and other paper assets, and they lost 80%, 90% of their wealth. Some people had kept their gold, and they found that um, they were able to buy the companies that the other people had bought out of bank- built out of bankruptcy. 
So there's a great reshuffling of wealth within Thailand and within throughout across Southeast Asia. And the people who had the assets to buy the other people's bankrupt assets were the people who had some of their wealth in gold. Right. So, and finally on that point, and then I'll just ask for your outlook as we wrap up, but so would you say that's gold's main benefit as a diversifier in your portfolio? Yes. That is its main sort of role and value? Yes. I mean, the reality is you can go anywhere in the world with a piece of gold and start a new life. Sure. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. And so, uh, do you have any outlooks for us? I, I, and I, before we go right to that, um, I've been looking at platinum, and to me, it seems like the ignored metal. I mean, palladium went parabolic uh, in the last twelve months. We saw gold has gotten a ton of attention. Silver has gotten a ton of att attention. I see platinum as this kind of ignored precious metal. What are your thoughts on platinum? I have many thoughts on platinum, but if I can summarize them. It has been ignored and uh, deprecated. Uh, there are people starting to look at it. Our expectation is that the platinum price will rise, but it's probably three to five years away before it starts rising. And it's primarily our expectation that the price will rise based on the fundamentals of the platinum market. Because platinum is not a financial asset. You know, it's a much smaller market. It's a much more specialized market. It's a much more uh, opaque market. There's a tremendous amount of mis that circulates in it. So you have any number of investors who look at the platinum market and then throw up their hands and say, I'm not going to touch this because there's too much nonsense. There's too much noise. The, 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 sure. the sound to noise ratio is far too low in platinum for me to get off my liquidity. Okay, interesting. Do you think it will outperform the other metals or not? I think it will outperform palladium in the long run. Maybe not in the next year or two, but in the long run, I do think that platinum will perform very well relative to palladium. I'm not sure that it will outperform gold or silver because those are financial assets and there are a lot more people interested in owning them. And governments around the world are working really hard to convince people, give them reasons to buy gold and silver. <laughs> right. And, and so finally, on that point, as we wrap up, do you have any price targets uh, for us in the same near midterm or? A year out? Uh... A year out, we think gold will be modestly higher, maybe 10% higher than it is now. We're looking for some plateauing. You know, gold prices have risen sharply over the last year. We're looking for prices to continue to rise, but uh, to slow down in 2021, 2022. And then the rise uh, accelerates. And if you're a technical analyst, you would think it'd be a second leg of a measured move. So if you have the going from 1200 to 2000 and then it sort of settles around 2000 2100 2200 for a couple of years and then it goes from 2100 to 2800 by 2024 2025 uh depending on when the next re recession hits and there will be one uh so that's our view on gold and and silver uh we're looking for the price to rise to record levels in the same sort of pattern Obviously, it'll be more volatile than gold. And again, on an annual average basis, I think we're talking about maybe $45 as a peak silver price compared to $35 on an annual average basis in 2011, 2012, when the price touched $50 uh, on an intraday basis. 
Interesting, right? Yeah, I always have to pay attention to those annual averages because I'm always thinking, why are these prices so low? BMO had their $1,400 an ounce for gold. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, these are annual uh, prices. Anyway, uh, Jeffrey Christian, any parting thoughts? I think that the length and breadth of our discussion is, you know, the, 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 the main takeaway. You know, gold, as I said, you know, gold is a very complicated market. And it's one of the reasons why I found myself fascinated by it. I'm, you know, I was a kid who liked to take apart transistor radios and other things and see how they worked when I was a really little kid. The gold market is sort of like uh, a new piece of electronics that came from outer space or the U.S. Defense Department. And you take it apart and you say, wow, what is this? And and it's such a complicated market. So you have to look at, you know, one of my critics in 1988, 89 said, Jeff Christian's not good at calling the gold market. He's just good at predicting global economic and financial markets. <laughs> so I'll take that. That's criticism. pretty lame. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's true. The people who got gold wrong in 88 were looking at gold supply demand and they were just drawing straight lines and saying, oh, this price... The price has gone from 290 in 1985 to $500 in, at the end of 1987. So it's going to be, you know, $1,000 in two years. And we were saying, no, the world is not in a recession, you know, recession probably two, three years out. Interest rates will remain relatively high. So we're talking about prices coming back down. Um, and, and, that's the cool thing about gold. You got to know about interest rates. You got to know about money and banking, international currency regimes, currency rates, financial markets. You get the stock market, the bond market, and the currency market right. You can understand where gold's going to go. You get those things wrong because you've got bad information or bad analysis. Uh, you're going to get gold wrong. Interesting. So it's right. Would you say it's the heart of the financial system? I wouldn't that... say it's the heart of the financial system. It's it's sort of like the little toe. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Great. Well, well, thank you, Jeffrey Christian, for joining us on the podcast. What an amazing conversation. I, I can't wait to share it with everybody. And uh, please come on the show again. My uh, my, I've had a lot of fun. It's been good to have a, a good substantive conversation. Sometimes, you know, in the gold market, you want find yourself crying when you have a good conversation because conversations that don't that, that dwell in all of this muck and distractions uh, are so common in the gold market so uh, it's been my pleasure and anytime you guys want me back i'm around cpm groups jeffrey christian in fine form Hope you enjoyed that. Do a little bit more on Bitcoin and Ethereum next time. I will warn Jeffrey Christian about that. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, you would help out the podcast immensely. And otherwise, share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.